few moments ago, I was sitting in the back of the church with Vesta, who is my wife of almost 46 years, and I leaned over to her and I said, in five minutes, I'm going to be preaching. That's kind of scary, isn't it? You're sitting back there just relaxing, and all of a sudden the bells ring, opening hymn, a little prayer, and here we go. So it's an exciting thing. I, I just am so thrilled to see so many people come out on Sunday evening because you want to learn from the Word of God. And there is no more clear and comprehensive treatment of the gospel in all of Scripture than in this magnificent book of Romans. And so it's just a, a pure delight for me to be able to be with you in these Sabbath evenings as we look together at God's Word. Tonight, I'm going to start at the end of chapter 5 and actually move in into chapter 6 as we continue our rapid coverage of this letter. We're going to begin at chapter 5, verse 20, and read through chapter 6, verse 4. And I'll ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. As a matter of reflex, as soon as I gave that announcement, my hand reached here for my little glass of uh, ginger ale. <laughs> I came up empty, Leslie. <laughs> it's going to be a long night. And let's look at the Word of God together. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let everyone be seated except Leslie. It's warm tonight, so we have to wait. Thank you, my friend. Thanks, Leslie. If every one of us had the heart that Leslie has, we'd be very, very far, far along in our sanctification. So we come to the end now of chapter 5. We read something that sounds a little bit strange, and 
you recall where we are now in this epistle, how that in the first chapter, Paul, after announcing the theme of the entire epistle of that righteousness of God that is by faith, then turned his attention to the universal revelation of God's wrath against the human race because God had given His self-revelation to everyone, and universally we who are fallen and corrupt in sin have repressed that knowledge, and we exchanged the truth of God for a lie and served and worshiped the creature rather than the Creator. And then Paul goes on to say that because of that, God gave mankind over to a reprobate mind, and then He gives a list the catalog of the vices that are our normal practice. And then in chapter 2, he brought Jew and Gentile together to the tribunal of God and showed that even though God's law was revealed to each one of us inwardly, nevertheless the whole world has violated the law of God with sin. In chapter 3, Paul again spelled out the depths of that depravity and corruption and brought again to the conclusion that by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Then he unfolds the doctrine of justification by faith alone, then goes to the Old Testament and uses the example of Abraham to show that this doctrine of justification by faith alone is not a novelty, not a new invention of the New Testament, but was the very means by which Abraham believed God and was counted by God as righteous. And then when we moved into chapter 5, We have spent some time in the benefits that follow and the consequences of our justification so that as a result of being justified, we have peace with God, we have access into His presence, we're able to rejoice in tribulation. And then in the next portion of chapter 5, as we've been looking at recently, Paul gives us this glorious comparison and contrast between the original Adam and Christ as the second Adam, and focuses on this grand motif of imputation in its negative ramifications in the imputation or the reckoning and transfer of sin from Adam to his descendants, but more gloriously, the imputation of the righteousness of Christ to those who believe on His name. And we saw also in chapter 5 an expression of the fact that we were in Adam and we sinned together in Adam. So after these comparatives and contrasts, now we reach the end of chapter 5 where Paul says, moreover the law entered that the offense may abound. Now what we have here is a purpose clause that gives the reason why a certain action has taken place. And what Paul is explaining here is why it was that the law became part of the equation. Remember, death reigned from Adam to Moses, as we've already seen, but now then God adds to the covenant that He makes with Adam and with Noah and to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now He adds the whole of the Old Testament law. And one of the reasons why God adds the law is that sin may abound. 
Doesn't that sound strange? Why in the world would God want sin to abound? You would think He would want it to abate, that He would want it to ebb and disappear from His creation. But the law comes and reveals to us our helpless condition, that the law reveals to us the reality of sin. Remember the principle that the Scripture set forth that where there's no law, there's no sin. Because by definition, sin is a transgression of the law of God. And yet we have this inherited corruption from our father Adam, and God gives law that we may see the extent of our sin. But not only that, because of our fallen condition, the law not only reveals our sin and defines our sin, but there is a true sense in which the added laws incite us to sin. So desperately wicked are we in our hearts that every time God adds a new law, we take that as an occasion to further our rebellion and our disobedience to Him. If this is not true for us in our humanity, just watch what happens with your children. The more rules you give them, the more determined they are to break them. Reminds me of the story of a preacher who spent his entire sermon just giving a litany of sins where he designated some 65 specific human acts that the Bible regards as sinful. And rather than commenting on them, he just took the time for the sermon and just listed them, one through 65. After the service, he got a letter of thanks from one of his parishioners saying, thank you, Pastor, for teaching us about all those sins. There were several I didn't know about and haven't tried yet. (laughs) So where the law was added, sin abounded. But then the point that Paul is making is again this contrast. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Now, notice that this is not just a comparison. It's not like we have an equation here. On two sides of the equation, you have sin, you have grace. And Paul may have said, well, where sin abounded, grace abounded. Five pounds of sin, five pounds of grace. There's a proportionate ratio between the, the, the degree of sin that we commit and the degree of grace that God gives to us. No, 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 no. It is not a comparative. It is a superlative. There really is no comparison. Where sin abounds, Paul says, grace does much more abound. 
The equation is not equal. The scales are not equal. Sin is far outweighed by the grace that God gives. And that's true in our lives, dear friends, that where we live, we live in the presence of a super abundance of grace that is far greater than the depths of our own disobedience. And then he says, parenthetically, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, what's he saying here? Let's look at this a little bit more closely. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death. What do you think he means by that statement, sin reigned in death? Paul is not saying that sin reigned unto death, so that wherever sin is in power, it results in death. He's already told us that that is, in fact, the case, that death is one of the consequences of sin. Where there's no sin, there is no death. But now he's not talking about the mere presence of sin. He's talking about its reign, where it exerts its power and authority. You want to see where the reign of sin may be found? You look in the face of death, because in death you see the exaltation of sin, the empowering of sin, the invasion of the power of sin into this world. I was thinking about it this morning. In the life of our church this week, we've lost three people to the reign of death. And yet we are approaching Easter where we see the conquest of that regency of evil. On another occasion, another context, I told the story of an existential experience I had on the day that my son was born that my mother had longed for a son, that the sprawl name would continue, and so on. And so when I told her that Vesta had a boy, she was so excited, and so I picked her up at the office after work and took her to the hospital where we could go to the nursery, and the nurse could pick up the newborn son, and my mother could look through the glass at him Afterwards, we went out to dinner. We came home. One of her friends called about 8 o'clock at night and invited her to come across the street and play bridge, but my mother said, no, I'm too tired. In fact, when we got to the apartment door, there was a package there from her favorite woman's dress shop, and she picked it up and opened it. She was so thrilled because it was her dress that she had ordered for my ordination, which was scheduled about two weeks later. 
And she looked at me before she went to bed. She said, I'm tired, I'm going to bed. She said, son, this is the happiest day of my life. She saw her grandson. She got her ordination dress. So she went to bed. A little later, I went to bed in another room with our little girl. The next morning, I heard our daughter Sherry, just a young girl, three years old, shouting at my mother to wake her up. And she came into the room and she says, Nan won't wake up. I walked into the room. And as soon as I walked in the room, I knew that she was dead. And I walked over and I touched her. She was cold. Rigor mortis had set in. It had obviously been several hours since she died. And you know how sleep is. You go to sleep at night. You wake up in the morning and it seems like only a minute or two has transpired when, in fact, it may be eight hours. And I stood there by my mother's bed, and I said, this is absolutely insane. This is crazy. Yesterday, I witnessed the entrance into this world of my son, a new life. And it just seems that a few moments ago, my mother was a living, breathing warm human being, and now she's dead. That is not right. That is the final enemy. And what Paul is saying here is just as death, as sin reigns in death again, He uses the superlative contrast here. Even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is one of his favorite contrasts in his writings, where he talks about the suffering and the pain that we experience in this world isn't worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us when we pass from this world, that what I felt was insane was now a transition to the presence of Christ. Beloved, that's our destiny. Our destiny is not to become citizens in the realm of sin under the power of death. But the power of that enemy has been vanquished by the righteous one. And by God's grace, who has much more poured upon us and given us the gift of that righteousness, which gives us the ultimate benefit of justification, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see now why? The gospel is so important that this doctrine of justification by faith alone can never be negotiated because in it, the glory of the grace of God is made manifest that while we were still sinners, Christ took upon Himself the curse of that reigning death and defeated the grave by His righteousness.
which righteousness is imputed to you by faith if indeed you put your trust in Him. Not an equation of equals here. Sin reigns in death, but Christ triumphs over death. Death is but a moment. The triumph lasts forever. Then he reads, begins chapter 6, and you can imagine when he was writing to the Romans, he said to his amanuensis, as he was dictating this epistle, put in now chapter (laughs) 6, verse 1. I always do that when I write letters. Paul is still in the midst of this contrast of excellence as he continues in chapter 6. But the basic theme now of chapter 6 sounds a new note where we make a theological distinction between justification and sanctification. And we see that transition, and I'm sure that's why those who divided this book up into chapters makes a chapter division here at the beginning of chapter 6, because now the attention is on another consequence, another result of justification, which is sanctification. And let's see how the apostle introduces that here. What shall we say then? You see, he interrupts his discourse. There's a pregnant pause here. He's just developed for us all of these fantastic benefits that flow out of our justification. All the rich fruits that accrue to us as a result of the gospel. And after explaining all of that to us, he's now coming to that part that is the so what. So how do we respond to it? What shall we say to this supremacy and triumph of grace over sin and over death? He knows how sinful people think. He's just given the argument that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. So the logic is simple. If you want more grace, commit more sin. Because where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So if you want a greater abundance of grace, let's sin as much as we can. Oh no, Paul says. What should we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He asks the question rhetorically. And he supplies the answer, and we have to see the impact of the answer when he says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? My translation here is very weak. It says, certainly not. Some translations are even weaker. They say, no. No, we shouldn't do that. Certainly not. My favorite remains. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound, God forbid. Don't even think about it. 
Because the force of the language here is that Paul is not simply expressing a denial of that premise, but the force of the language signals apostolic abhorrence. Paul would be abhorred if he heard any believing Christian say, well, if I keep getting grace when I sin, I'm just going to keep on sinning that grace may abound. God forbid. Don't even think about that. You know, in the time of the Reformation in the 16th century, the charge that was immediately leveled against Luther was the charge of antinomianism. And I remind you that antinomian, as the word suggests, anti means against, opposed to. Nomos is the Greek word for law, so antinomian Ism means a spirit of being opposed to or against the law of God. And what the Roman Catholic Church feared with the doctrine of sola fide, justification by faith alone, was that people would understand this as a license for sin. Well, if justification is by faith alone, without any works, the peasant is going to understand that simply to mean that I'm saved by grace, by faith alone, I can live however I want to live. And so it was critical to the reformers of the 16th century that they answer that charge and answer that concern because they had the same concern and they reminded their friends in the Roman church, that Paul addresses this question in Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. And Luther said, we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Justification by faith alone, as we've seen, is shorthand for justification by Christ alone and by His righteousness. But justification by faith alone was never intended by God and His grace as a license for sin. The great anthem of antinomianism is, saved from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. That's the theme song of antinomianism. And every time the gospel is preached, the demon of antinomianism knocks at the door and said, if you're justified by faith and works don't count, and if works don't count, then works don't matter. No, no, no. No work that you ever do will ever contribute to your justification. In that sense, they don't count. But that is not the same thing as saying they don't matter.
because we are justified unto good works. Not justified by good works, but justified unto good works. We're not justified by our sanctification, but we are justified unto sanctification, that the fruit of true faith, the fruit of true justification will always be conformity to the image of Christ. And that's what Paul is beginning now to spell out for us. If we want to think of these things in, in terms of equations and formulae, the formula for justification for Rome is this. Remember that Rome believes that faith is necessary and indispensable to justification. So an Orthodox Roman Catholic can say, yes, I believe that justification is by faith, but he must choke to death on the Word alone because his communion teaches that justification is by faith plus works. So there's the formula. Faith plus works equals justification. You have to have the works where there's no justification because the works are part of the grounds for that justification. We've been through this. The Reformation view, the biblical view, is faith equals justification plus works. The works are there, but they're on the other side of the equation from justification. Now, here's the formula for antinomianism. Justification, I mean, faith equals justification minus works. That's the heresy that Paul is abhorring here at the beginning of chapter 6. Earlier in our study of Romans, I made mention of a controversy that broke out seriously about 15 years ago within dispensational circles in the United States, where John MacArthur was at the very center of that controversy that became known as the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Some of you are familiar with it, where some classic dispensationalists were saying that if you say that true justification must result in good works, you are denying the free grace of the gospel. They were saying a person can receive Jesus as Savior and not as Lord and be saved. Let me say it again. You can receive Jesus as your Savior, but not as Lord and still be saved. Now, there was a division among those between Zane Hodges at Dallas Seminary and Charles Ryrie. Hodges has said, said and taught emphatically that a person could be converted to Christ, put their trust in Him as their Savior, and never, ever, ever produce a single work of obedience and still be saved. And Hodges insisted 
that if you argued that you must produce fruit of righteousness, then you are mixing works with faith and destroying the gospel. Ryrie was less militant. He said, no, if you have true faith, then eventually, sooner or later, you must begin to show some change in your pattern of living. And so, he said, as distinct from Hodges, that if you have true faith, good works are inevitable at some point. A less militant form of antinomianism, where the gospel teaches us that if you have true faith in Jesus Christ, works of obedience are not only inevitable, but immediate. Because a justified person is a changed person. Again, I touched on this lightly earlier on, telling you that that justification is the fruit of faith, and faith is the fruit of regeneration. You can't have saving faith unless the Holy Spirit has changed the disposition of your soul. So only the regenerate have faith, and all who are regenerate are changed. You can't have the Holy Ghost changing the disposition of your heart, bringing you to faith, and leaving you hanging there with no change in your life. This is where, as I mentioned again earlier, this really, really serious doctrine of the carnal Christian that has just gone like wildfire through the Christian community emerged from this view. You've seen the analogy of the chair and the circle, where in the unconverted person, self is on the throne, and Christ is outside the circle. You've seen that. And then the converted person has Christ now inside the circle, but self is still on the throne. But the Spirit-filled person has Christ on the throne, and the self has been removed. And so that whole metaphor there teaches that you can have Christ in your life, you can be converted, but He's not on the throne. See, that comes from the idea that you can have Christ as Savior, but not as Lord. There I am so grateful to John MacArthur for his indefatigable labor to correct that biblical error, saying, no, no, no. You cannot receive Christ as Savior without at the same time bending your knee to His Lord. That doesn't mean that the moment you believe, you're perfect. But the moment you believe, you're changed. Your life has turned around, and the beginning of the process of sanctification has taken place. Justification does not produce the fullness of sanctification, but it initiates it immediately. And if you've made a profession of faith, 
and there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever in your heart or in your life of change, then you need to ask yourself whether that profession of faith was genuine. Because true faith always immediately produces change. Yes, indeed, the battle with sin goes on for our whole lifetime. We don't believe in instantaneous sanctification. Justification is instantaneous. The second you believe, you're fully justified. You'll never be any more justified than you are the moment you believe. But sanctification is a process that begins at your justification and is completed in your glorification in heaven. And if we are believers, we're in that process of sanctification. Luther put it this way. He said, with our justification, we are justified solely on the grounds of the righteousness of Jesus. But when God pronounces us just by imputation, what He does, as it were, is to give us the medicine by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit where we're becoming righteous not only by imputation, but by sanctification. That the medicine of the indwelling Holy Spirit will affect our full sanctification. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it. Strong, strong statement there that when we come to Christ the, and when we are born anew, the old man has been put to death. Oh, and Paul will go on to say how, but nevertheless, it keeps kicking and screaming. But in a very real sense, we are crucified with Christ. So the new life in Christ is just that, a new. All things are new. He who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away, and all things have become new. And Paul goes on and speaks in a metaphorical way here. He says, do you not know that as many of us as us, as we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His death. Every time we have the sacrament of baptism here, I try to take the occasion to just give a little trickle of some of the substance of the meaning of that sacrament, which is the sign of the new covenant. You know, we have really lost touch with the riches of the sacraments that God has given to His people. You know, Luther used to say when the devil would tempt him, he'd say, get away from me, I'm baptized. That doesn't mean I don't believe that because we're baptized, we're automatically saved. But what happens in our baptism is that God gives us a tangible, visible sign of His promise of redemption. All the promises that are wrought through the redeeming work of Christ 
are contained in that sign. Baptism is a sign of our being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't affect regeneration, but it's a sign of it. It's the sign of our justification. Baptism doesn't make us justified, but it's the sign of God's promise that all who believe will in fact be justified. It's a sign of our sanctification. It's the sign of our being indwelt by the Holy Ghost. It's a sign of our glorification. And among other things, it's a sign of our identification with Christ, that all who believed are identified with Christ. They are in Christ. He is their champion. He is the one who dies for their sins. So that if I'm a believer and I've been baptized, my baptism is a sign of my identification and participation with the death and the resurrection of Christ. You know, my Baptist friends and I differ on whether babies should be baptized. Of all the doctrines that we wrestle with in the church, there's none I'm more certain of than that we ought to baptize our babies. But the one thing I give my Baptist friends is the existential benefit of waiting to a later point where you're aware of your own faith and being immersed because the powerful symbolism of going under the water and being brought up out of the water, even Calvin, who was the great advocate of infant baptism, said that where possible, the preferred method of baptism, he didn't think it was necessary for it to be authentic baptism, but the preferred method of baptism would be through immersion. Why? Because it carries so brilliantly that symbol of burial and resurrection. Paul says, if you're a believer, if you've received the grace of justification, do you remember that in your baptism you were marked for your union with the death of Christ? And not only marked with your union with the death of Christ, but with the burial of Christ that follows His death. But it's not only that we are baptized into His death and into His burial, but we're baptized into His resurrection. All of these things are part of what is being communicated graphically, tangibly, visibly with the sign of baptism. Well, we baptize the little babies. Isn't that cute? You see them fuss sometimes, sometimes giggle. But it is a precious thing. You know, one of the persons I want to meet when I get to heaven is the minister that baptized me in the Methodist church. God have mercy on him. He was a beloved pastor to my family when I was a small boy. And I just would, I'd long to have the opportunity to sit down with him and say, you know, you baptized me, and the first 17 years you wouldn't know that I was anything but a child of hell. 
then God quickened my soul. All the promises that were communicated to me in baptism were realized the moment I believed. And I understood my burial and my resurrection in Christ. This is a motif throughout the Pauline literature. You notice that Paul says people want to be ashamed of Jesus. They don't want to be counted as Christians and so on. And Paul says, if you're not willing to identify with his humiliation, if you're not willing to identify with his death and with his burial, please don't expect to participate in his exaltation. Because he said, if you're ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed of you before my Father on that day. In a very real sense, in an Aldwin sense, we've already died. We've already been buried. And we're already participating in the resurrection of Christ. Isn't that fantastic? That's what he says. Do you not know as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so should we also walk in newness of life. We're resurrected people. We already have the down payment of eternal life in our souls by having been given the earnest and the sealing of the Holy Ghost. How can a person who is in Christ Jesus, who participates in the power of His resurrection, continue in sin? That grace may abound. It's not possible. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for the mismatch between the reign of sin and the triumph of grace. For the mismatch between the power of death and the power of your resurrection. Father, help us to look once more the sign of the new covenant by which your promise of all the blessings that are hid in the victory of Christ become ours.